0: Good morning, if you would, grab a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 9, where we'll begin this part of our worship, Matthew chapter 9. I want to say a word of welcome to those who are visiting with us, thank you so much for being here, we want you to know we're glad that you're here, and if there's anything that we can do to make your stay better here, to help you to be right with God, to help you to know more about what we do here, we'd love to talk to you more about that. Thank you so much for being here. I want to begin in Matthew 9 by reading in verse 9. Matthew 9 and verse 9, the text says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means: I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus and the Pharisees ended up on the wrong sides, the opposite sides of a lot of issues. The Pharisees don't like Jesus about the Sabbath, they don't like Jesus about money, they don't like Jesus about fasting. But what happens here is less about an issue than really a whole worldview, a way of looking at everything Jesus came to engage sinners while the Pharisees resented, criticized, refused to join him in any kind of contact with sinners. Verse 11 says, in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It is profoundly confusing to them because it is something they would never do. Why would he do this? I have no idea why anyone would choose to eat with tax collectors and sinners. So in Jesus and the Pharisees, we have two very different views of lost people or of sinners. And this is relevant to us because we have a work to do as disciples of Jesus. Our work involves us engaging people who have not yet become disciples of Jesus and to try to win them over to him. In fact... That is God's great desire, as we'll see this morning. It is what God wants most, is for those who are not yet His disciples to become disciples of Jesus. So we have a mission and a goal to reach the lost with the gospel. And it would be awful. It would be counterproductive if we ended up on the Pharisee side, opposite Jesus, when it comes to how we look at those who are lost? So what I want to do this morning for our time is I want to talk about the biggest barrier that we have to disciple making. And this is a little bit of a different approach this morning because I'm going to tell you immediately what the biggest barrier to disciple making is. We're not doing any of that wait till the end of the sermon stuff. But if I tell you, you have to still pay attention, okay? Is it a deal? All right. So the biggest barrier to disciple making is is our view of those people around us. You see, the view we have of the lost impacts the way our message is received. People hear more than just the words we say. When we say something to people, the way we treat people, the way we think about them, it comes across, even when we say all the right things, if we think of people as lesser, then they're going to hear that. And so what I want to do this morning is to try to advance our efforts at sharing the gospel with other people by talking about how we view other people. And by the end of this lesson, I think you'll see that there's a very clear problem with trying to make disciples from the Pharisaic viewpoint, the viewpoint that says other people are less than me. We want to look at sinners and the lost the way Jesus looks at sinners and the lost, so Let's talk about that for a few minutes. First, disciple-making is hard when I think that lost people will corrupt me. That's one of the things that Pharisees view the lost as, as corrupting. You see that a little bit here in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew 9 and verse 11, you remember they ask him, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." They are scandalized because Jesus eats with sinners. How can you eat with them? Eating with them is going to mean more than just consuming food in their presence. Eating with them in some way is going to taint you and your reputation. Eating with them is going to mean that somehow their sin is going to rub off on you. You could be contaminated. Jesus kind of goes along with the idea, at least, that they might be sick. But he says those who are sick have a need of a doctor. I'm here to help them. I'm not going to get sick from them. They're not going to corrupt me. Instead, I'm going to bless them and help them to become well. It never seems to occur to the Pharisees that Jesus might be getting close to tax collectors and sinners to make them better. That just doesn't come across to them. The only thing they see, the only way this could go is it's going to ruin Jesus' reputation and probably make him a sinner too. That's the way they view the lost, only as corruptors. Look with me in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're going to be going to several places in the New Testament where we look at how the Pharisees particularly view those who are lost. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. Luke seven and verse thirty six, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisees' house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the Pharisees of the city who was a sitter when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He is scandalized that Jesus would allow this woman to... Touch him because she is a sinner. If he were a prophet, he says, he would know what kind of woman this is. And he would certainly not allow her to touch him because she is such a sinner. That some people are so sinful, the Pharisee thinks, that we shouldn't even be close to them. If they touch us, we might catch what they've got. It is awfully hard to convince people to come close to God... If they are so convinced that they are evil and it might rub off on me. I believe it is the mindset of the Pharisees that explains the crowd's reaction when Jesus goes in to the house of Zacchaeus. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. What's the problem? It's a sinner, but but he's coming in the house. He's going to be in the same house with him. He might touch him. He might eat with him. What a problem that would be. These are the same people in John 18, 28. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters... ...so that they would not be defiled... ...but could eat the Passover. See, if you go into the headquarters... ...where the governor is, where Gentiles are... ...you will be defiled. You will catch what they've got. You'll become unclean too. It is a particular twist of the Jewish teaching... ...that leads to this conclusion. They can't be in the same room as someone else. Jesus rejects the idea that I will catch your defilement. That it's contagious... Jesus says no, and when we view people as if whatever sin they have, somehow by being close to them, I'm going to catch it, it's going to be awfully hard to make disciples. Now, to be clear, the Bible does teach that people influence us. Bad company ruins good morals, 1 Corinthians 15, But Jesus never seems to entertain this possibility. See, he influences other people, but other people don't influence him. That's not the way it works with Jesus. In fact, I want us to see that that's not just a Jesus thing. I grew up seeing those stories and saying, well, that's different because he's Jesus. I'm not Jesus. But Jesus actually liberates us from the idea that somehow we're going to unwittingly, against our will, catch other people's sin. Go with me to Matthew chapter 15. I'll show you where that is. Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew 15, I want to begin in verse 16. Now, this is in the middle of Jesus explaining a a cryptic saying he made about what defiles us. But in Matthew 15 and verse 16, it says, he said, Are you still also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person for out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness slander these are what defile a person but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone what comes out of the heart is what defiles a person so hear me please other people can corrupt us but only if we consent to it my sin is something I choose it comes from within me And Jesus is saying, in the same way that Jews viewed all these foods as potentially corrupting, if I put the wrong thing in my mouth that makes me unclean, Jesus says, no, it's not something that other people do to you or that your environment does to you that makes you unclean or defiled. It is what comes out of you, what you have chosen, what you want, what you do that makes you unclean. And that means that Jesus has the power to engage sinful people without being defiled, and I do too. I too can reach out to other people and help them connect to God. And I will only be defiled by that when I choose to be defiled by that. But I will always struggle to be sincere and caring and open and honest with people when I really believe that they're sick and I might get sick too. That they're sinners and I might catch their sin. So does that mean That we should never consider the possibility that other people could corrupt us? No. No, that is a reality, and that does happen. But it's that we should not assume that just because someone has chosen to sin, that I'm going to, by some association, become guilty of their sin. That is a hard obstacle to overcome in our view of others. And when other people view us that way, view us as unworthy because of what we've done... It's going to be hard for us to not feel the sting of that. So, disciple making is hard when I think lost people will corrupt me. Disciple making is hard when I think, "Ah, don't look at that one." You didn't see it, did you? Okay. Lost when disciple making is hard when I think lost people are unworthy of my attention. Let's look in Luke 15. Luke 15. Lost people unworthy of my attention. You remember the Pharisees had asked Jesus, Or asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It doesn't make any sense. Why would he do this? They genuinely don't understand. What motivation could he possibly have? They don't get it. His attention could be spent so much better somewhere else. Luke chapter 15 and verse 1 has a similar idea from them. Luke 15 and verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So they grumble. This isn't right. How could this be? Why would he do this? He receives sinners and eats with them. He has gone in to be the guest of a sinner. On and on they go. And so in this chapter in Luke 15, he tells three stories about lost things. There's a reason I use the word lost people. That's the word Jesus uses to describe them. People who have been stranded and far away from God. And he talks about three lost things. A lost sheep and a lost coin and then a lost son. And in each case, the one who has lost something is desperate to find it. And when they find it, they rejoice. But then at the end of the story, in the story of the lost son, beginning in verse 25, you have this other element that is about the resentment that comes when God's attention should be directed somewhere else, at least according to a group like the Pharisees. Luke 15 and verse 25, now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So this older brother, in case you've missed it, is the Pharisees. They are resentful of the attention that lost people are getting from Jesus. How could Jesus receive sinners and eat with them? After all, what about us? Look, we've been doing good this whole time. We never openly rebelled. And you didn't even give us a young goat. And so there seems to be a resentment... ...of the attention God had directed at lost people because they were lost. That's the way the Pharisees thought. They really would have preferred Jesus. Whatever they thought about Jesus and his, his messianic idea... ...whatever they thought about who Jesus was... ...they would have preferred him to leave the sinners and tax collectors alone forever... ...and just spend all his time arguing the finer points of the law with them. See, that's what he should do. I mean, why else would you come if not to just argue about theology... Why wouldn't you want to reach out to all these people? That doesn't matter. Those people don't deserve your attention. And in response to that, Jesus says, no, lost people are my mission. They are the reason I have come. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul says, I am chief. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Over and over again, Jesus says, no, this is... Why I'm here. For Christians, we have some work to do as disciples of Jesus. You know, we have work that we're doing. We're trying to grow in Christ. We're trying to develop our sense of morality. We're trying to grow in our relationships with our family, with other people. We're trying to learn what it is to develop the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Those are works that God is doing in us that we share in together as a group. And as we work on those things, it's really easy for us to forget that God's eyes are still on the lost. That God is the father who's still watching for his son to come home. That God is the shepherd who's leaving the 99 to go after the one. That God is sweeping the house until he finds that tenth coin. It's easy for us to forget that God's not just focused on us and to resent the attention it comes to others who have spent their time not doing the things that Christians are doing while my brethren are special to me it's important that I never reach a point of feeling that everybody else just doesn't matter sort of becoming exclusive in our work together where we don't think about the rest of the world that is lost and dying without the Lord So Jesus treats lost people as the heart of his mission. And it's going to be hard for us to make disciples when we think that lost people are not worthy of that attention. Disciple making is hard when I think lost people have no redeeming qualities. It's very interesting to me. Pharisees seem to miss everything good about tax collectors and sinners and all they see is that title, tax collectors or sinners. In chapter 15 and verse 1, did you notice that? Luke 15 and verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives tax collectors, receives sinners and eats with them. Do you see the issue here? You have got a bunch of tax collectors and sinners who are listening to a prominent rabbi, having dinner with him, asking him questions. This is a good thing. They are spiritually interested. They're waking up. And all the Pharisees can say is, oh, great, look who's here. See, they don't see anything redeeming about these people. These are the same that are grumbling when Jesus goes in to visit Zacchaeus. Do you remember what Zacchaeus says when Jesus goes to his house? That he bestows half his goods to the poor and that he repays fourfold when he defrauds anyone? They don't see the good in Zacchaeus, they only see the evil. And it is awfully hard to make disciples out of people that you don't think have anything redeeming about them. Jesus is not that way. Jesus does not see tax collectors and sinners that way. Can I give you a couple of examples? Do you know when Jesus tells stories, he tells stories where tax collectors and prostitutes are the heroes? He tells one story where he talks about two sons... And one of them, when given an instruction by their father, says, sure, I'll go do it, and doesn't. And the other says, no, I won't, and then does. And then he says, who actually did the will of his father? And he says, you know who that is? That's the tax collectors and prostitutes who enter the kingdom of God before you. Matthew chapter 21. He tells another story. You're familiar with this one. Where a Pharisee and a tax collector go down to the temple to pray. A Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee is the one who comes out of that condemned and the tax collector is righteous in God's sight. Jesus sees redeeming qualities in sinful people. That's the question for us. Are we able to look at people and see that there is good in everyone? To see reason for hope and encouragement. See something positive. Something that we can encourage in them. Now to be sure, people in the world are going to have sin. They're going to have rough edges. They're going to talk about doing things that the Bible condemns. They're going to talk in corrupt ways. Sometimes they're going to attack our faith. But is that all we can see? Is that really the whole picture of that person? Can't we see that they're really committed to their families? Can't we see that some are honest? Some are truth seekers. Perhaps they're seeking love or belonging or community. Or they're committed or they're kind. Or there's something that I can say, there is something positive going on in that person's life. Something redeeming. Rather than the view that, People are mostly sinners with a a couple of bright spots. Can't we see that most people are the mix of good and bad qualities and good and bad actions that we are? If we can see people as people, people who have redeeming qualities and have potential, then disciple-making is going to be a lot easier. But the biggest barrier to disciple-making is when we look at other people and say, they're pretty much worthless, why bother? No way. Disciple-making is also hard when I think lost people are nothing like me. Do you remember what the Pharisee prays in the temple? I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. He is not like that tax collector, and he is proud of it. Is it any surprise that his outreach doesn't reach very far? I thank you that I'm not like other men. Thank you, God, for making me better than everybody else. Look with me in Luke chapter 7, if you would. Jesus has a corrective to this. In Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 41. <clears throat> Luke 7 and verse 41. Jesus is still in the house of this Pharisee named Simon. Luke 7, 41. He tells the story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then he turned, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, she you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And he goes on to describe the difference between the two based on their perception of how much they've been forgiven. But I want you to notice that in the story Jesus tells, he talks about two debtors, two debtors. He does not say, Simon, let me tell you a story about one debtor and one person who never owed anything. In the story, Simon is a debtor too because Simon is a sinner too. Simon has forgotten. Simon has lost sight of his own sin. Now certainly in his little story, Jesus is showing us that we're going to have different numbers of sins. But that doesn't mean that we're different. What that means is only that some people have gone further down the rabbit hole than other people have. That's all. In the Pharisee's mind, there is a bright line of difference between sinners and me. And on one level, that's understandable. It's understandable that Simon the Pharisee would think, I'm nothing like this woman who is probably a prostitute. I'm nothing like her. Because Simon had devoted his life to trying to study the word to try to learn more about God, to sacrifice so much to commit to God. Meanwhile, this woman, the tax collectors, were willing to sacrifice that commitment to God for other things, probably most notably money. But here's the problem. See, the Pharisees never see themselves as sinners, never. The thought never even seems to occur to them. They can be full of all uncleanness and dead men's bones, corrupt to the core. But all they're doing is saying, boy, that Jesus, he sure isn't very good, is he? Or oh, those tax collectors, they need a lot of work. They never see themselves as anything like that. And it's no surprise then that Pharisees are not very good at reaching out. Pharisees are not very good at evangelism because they think... It's a world full of people who are nothing like me. It's interesting to me that Paul was raised a Pharisee... ...and Paul learned better when he came to Christ. This is Paul's words. 1 Timothy 1, 12, 13, 15. I thank him who has given me strength. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent... ...but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners... ...of whom I am the foremost... Do you think Paul related to sinners when he can say, I was all these awful things and I am the foremost of sinners? Paul has lost that sense that sinners are nothing like me. He says this in Titus 3 and verse 2, to show perfect courtesy toward all people, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and then be hated by others, hating one another. He says, we show courtesy to others. We view others in this way because we were like them. We understand where they're coming from. We know what it is to be in sin. We know what it is to be slaves to passions and pleasures. I've been there, he says. That's what leads to disciple making is when we can connect and say, I understand where you are because I've been there. Let me show you how I got out of there. But when we think lost people are nothing like us, we're going to have a hard time making disciples so maybe maybe I'm not a sinner anymore but it's not because I've never been one or because I'm not like that or because I've worked my way out of that I relate to sinners because I am a sinner and finally disciple making is hard when I think that lost people will never change this is the world of the Pharisees. The Pharisees live in a world where there is a bright line between righteous and sinners, and nobody ever crosses the line. Righteous don't become sinners. Sinners don't become righteous. You are what you are. And so there is no hope for redemption or change. Zacchaeus will not be righteous. He's a tax collector, after all, a chief tax collector. Matthew and his tax collector buddies will not become righteous. It doesn't matter how much Jesus teaches them. They're not going to be righteous. It's probably going to go the other way. Sinful woman is a sinful woman. She's going to be sinful. And you can see how that might handicap your efforts to reach out, right? Why are you going to reach out? What's going to change? Nothing's going to change. Why would I reach out to a sinful person? They're always going to be sinful. That's who they are. Of course, Jesus doesn't think that way. Look with me in Matthew chapter 9 for a moment. Jesus doesn't think that way. Jesus wants this to change. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36. Matthew 9 and verse 36. The text says, Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he has compassion on the multitudes. He sees what they are like. They are harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, just the way they are. No, he says, you need to pray about this, that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest. We need help. God is at work here. And then Jesus in chapter 10 begins to send out his own men to collect the harvest. Jesus sees potential for change. When Jesus sees needs and redeeming qualities, he sees potential for change. And he says the fields are white for harvest. It's time. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. There is a false narrative that goes on in our world. It goes something like this. You know, people just aren't interested in the gospel anymore. Have you heard that? Nobody's interested anymore. I mean, after all, We've got all these distractions. People are doing so many other things. Nobody has time for God anymore. We used to have gospel meetings, and they'd go for three months at a time, maybe two years. <laughs> now we can't have gospel meetings, but more than a couple of days. And nobody comes. Nobody's interested. Churches are dying. People are all wrapped up in science. People are all wrapped up in pleasure. On and on we go. Nobody's interested in the gospel anymore. Do we really believe that? Can I just say, disciple making is going to be hard when it's a lost cause before we even start. If we don't think it's going to work, why are we going to try? But do we really believe that our generation is somehow so radically different from every generation that's ever been before us? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that people won't respond to the power of God to salvation, the gospel is? Because at that point, what are we saying? We're not really saying that people have changed. We're saying that God no longer has a gospel that works. God can't do anything about it. I mean, sorry God, it used to work. But, I mean, you just weren't prepared for 2018. 2018 was too much for you. Are we really prepared to say that God's gospel can't change people today? I think we know better than that. There are still people who are looking. They're looking for meaning in their lives and for hope and for peace and for order. They're looking... For the gospel of Jesus. There are people with redeeming qualities. There are people who would respond to the gospel and change their lives were it presented to them. Sometimes those changes are going to be tremendous and unexpected. Like they were with Paul or with the priests or with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Sometimes they will not be as big. But I want to remind you. That thinking that lost people will never change. Means we doubt the power of God's word to change them. That's a problem. That's going to make discipleship, disciple making very hard. It's going to make evangelism not work. So what we need to say is what Jesus said about the gospel. That lost people can change and do change. That lost people change the way Jesus helped them change. That lost people change the way they have changed in every generation since then. By the gospel. That lost people can change the way you and I have changed. From being lost people to being disciples. And that that pattern will continue until Jesus comes back. Because God is behind it. So, if I think they'll never change, it's going to make my disciple making a real challenge. I want you, for the time that we have left, to try a thought experiment with me. What I mean is, we're going to think through some things, and I want you to think with me. I want you to think of a person who is close to you, a family, someone in your family, someone at work, someone from the community, someone who is close to you who does not have a relationship with God. All right, so I'll give you a second to get that person in your head. Now, I want you to think forward for a moment. And I want you to think about what might happen in the future. Can you see a scenario in which you influence that person for good? Maybe that comes because they see you doing something that Christians do. Maybe that comes because you invite them to something or talk with them about something or invite, uh, encourage them to do something different. I know other people can influence us. I know that. But I'm asking you to think about a way that you can think about you influencing them for the better. Now, I want you to think about what that's going to mean from you as you try to influence them for the better. It's going to mean attention. It's going to mean some time. It's going to mean some energy. It's going to mean you need to have conversations with them, right? Even if they never come to Christ because of this influence, I want you to think about how it's still worth the investment. So we're not just thinking about someday that person is going to be baptized and then convert a thousand people on their own. We're just talking about if I influence them, that influence is worth all the investment. Now I want you to think about some good things that you've seen from that person. What draws you to them? What makes you like that person? What do you see that's positive? If you were to talk to someone about them and you wanted to say only good things, what would you find to say about that person? See that there are redeeming qualities in them. Then I want to ask the question, how do you relate to them? Is there any similarity in your story? Any similarity in your personality or your struggles and flaws, your family situation? What could you emphasize in that relationship as it grows deeper, as you influence them? What is there that you could say, that's a way we are alike? And I want you to imagine, what would it be like if they changed? if they responded to the gospel, if their lives began to shift to make more room for Jesus, if they said, I would like for you to teach me about Jesus, what would that be like? Now, that set of thoughts is how Jesus thinks about the lost. Jesus thinks about the lost in that proactive way that says I can help them and bless them, that says they do deserve my attention, they do have good about them, they are like me, and they can change. But until we get to where Jesus is in our thinking, we're going to have a hard time sharing the gospel with others. Would you pray with me about it? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time that you blessed us with, that we could open your word, that we could look at your Son... And we can see how he views those who are far away from you. Father, I pray that you'll help us to think about them in the same way. Not to be condescending. Not to be aloof. Not to think we're better. But to remember your great passion and your great love for all people. I pray that you'll help us to be like you. Father, there there are many in our world. There are probably some here in this room. Who are distant from you at this time. And Father, we ask that you will help us to reach out to them in kindness and humility and love, that you will bless our efforts to influence, to draw them closer to you, that you will work through us. And Father, I pray that you will bless us as we try to be a group of people who are not only disciples, but who are disciple makers who will bring others to you and show them the great glory that you have and the great joy and peace we found in you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. There might be someone here with us this morning who is ready to respond, to become a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus and to leave behind a life of sin. We want to encourage you now at this time to take that step and be baptized into Christ, have your sins washed away and begin a new life, a new walk with Him. But if there is any need that you have that we can help you with that's spiritual in nature, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.